Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 3, Educational Tools and Spaces. The paper, The Creation and Evolution of the Educational Role of the Cambridge Anatomical Museum, was given by Jenna Dietmar of the University of Cambridge. So today I'm going to be talking to you about just one very small aspect of my PhD. Um, so my PhD research actually primarily f- focuses on medical training and how this knowledge was disseminated through the form of human dissection. So that's, um, that's actually what I'm looking at in a broader sense. So I'm doing this by analyzing the human skeletal remains from archaeological sites, specifically the cut marks. So my interest in the Cambridge Anatomy Museum was initially just for the preparations themselves and specifically what could we learn from the cut marks that we found on a great many of them. And it wasn't until I was trying to place these elements into the broader context that I realized that there were other implications and other things that I could be looking at using this collection. So uh, my, per- my supervisor, Dr. Piers Mitchell, has done some work on the skeletal material in other collections and showed that they were a viable resource. So I decided to use that type of approach when analyzing this material. So I wanted to see specifically what the bones were telling us. Um, and I wanted to f- analyze these in probably a less historical way than um, many of the other papers. But I also wanted to place these into the role that human dissection played at the University of Cambridge in this time. So. And the cultural context and complex social issues surrounding the high demand for fresh cadavers to dissect um, and the lucrative enterprise, of course, of obtaining these has been the focus of much research in recent years. And it is clear from this collective body of work that the difficulty in obtaining cadavers before the 19th century made maximizing their utility quite necessary. Although the primary reason for obtaining these cadavers was often for human dissection, once acquired, cadavers could often serve multiple purposes to institutions. These bodies were valuable as dissection material, um, but they also provided a medium to practice surgical procedures, and a, a further way of getting the most out of these types of cadavers was to keep preparations for future use as anatomical teaching specimens or as specimens in a museum. During the 18th and 19th centuries, these collections were considered an essential element to, to pretty much every institution that I've, I've come across thus far. And most of these museum collections had, were heavily influenced by the curators. So this is kind of where the idea for the project came from. In Cambridge, the jurisdiction of the medical museum fell to the professor of anatomy, and it, were, it was these individuals that were responsible for the anatomical collections, so therefore I figured that they would have the most influence over the type of preparations that were being kept. So, but also, of course, because the anatomical teaching specimens were primarily used as teaching aids, the curriculum and the changes in the university would have also played a role in what was kept in the museum. 
So the aim of my paper today is to explore the influencing factors behind the assemblage of the Cambridge anatomical preparations that were kept for teaching specimens and how the collection changed based on the influences of these medical men. I used a combination of textual sources and human skeletal remains from the uh, archaeological museum and the archives have kind of been scattered to the wind, but we have a good many of them in the Duckworth Collection in the Division of Biological Anthropology, where the skeletal material is obtained. Then I had to kind of go to every other library in Cambridge, and I was just in Trinity College Dublin archive trying to sort the rest of the archive material out. So the osteological specimens came to the Division of Biological Anthropology in 1968. Um, we had an assortment of waxes and mummified remains and skeletal materials and models just kind of came in big boxes and they've been stored since then and nobody has really done anything with them. So in addition to this, there are several published catalogs that describe the content of the, of the museum and we were able to kind of trace the evolution of the collection through those as well. In addition, there were other several unpublished papers and manuscripts that were conducted. So the University of Cambridge has a long history of teaching medicine that is said to have began at the foundation over 800 years ago. The very first professorship of anatomy in England was founded at the University of Cambridge in 1707, and the museum was the responsibility of the incumbent anatomy professor. However, the origin of the anatomical museum is often attributed to Sir Buzzock Harwood, who was professor of anatomy nearly 80 years after the creation of the professorship. And the literature reports pretty much all consistently agree that the first six professors of anatomy were relatively unconcerned with the development of the collection. However, based on elements in the collection, I think it's more likely that the origins of the museum coincided with the opening of the anatomy school in 1716, as preparations were certainly being amassed by the mid-1700s. We know that because we have this, which is the collection's oldest surviving specimen, and it's the skull of Lawrence Stern, who was an author of uh, Tristram, Shanty, uh, Tristram Shanty Gentleman, and he was dissected in 1768 by the uh, <coughs> professor of anatomy, Charles Collingman, who was elected in 1753. So this is how we were able to kind of shuffle our history back just a little bit further. Because Harwood's influence of the collection was so instrumental, oh, I'm sorry, he was the first known individual to be creating preparations in spirit, and he was, he amassed an impressive collection of this type of preparation. Throughout his tenure, he contributed heavily to the collection by creating anatomical preparations from dissections and perform that he used to illustrate his lectures as well as in the anatomy theater. So Harwood changed and expanded his curriculum to better align with his views of what he believed the medical students at Cambridge should be learning. And he published a list in 1792 of a synopsis of course lectures on anatomy, and these covered a wide range of topics that were not just restricted to human anatomy. Although the course did start with learning the uh, the human anatomy and physiology, function and interworking of the systems. It went on to include other lectures in pathology and comparative anatomy. So the first record of these types of preparations that we have are from 1803, where he lists 298 of the museum preparations in a published catalog, a descriptive catalog of preparations in spirit in the anatomical museum. And both human and animal remains were listed as being in the museum. 
So in alignment with Howard's early research interests, the preparations of the Anatomical Museum in the early, in the early 19th century were predominantly human. Uh, so with 62% of the listed entries being human. The other 40%, however, were, of course, from uh, animals and plants, and that comprised the comparative anatomy collection. Uh, what's interesting specifically about the collection at this time is that there is a very, very small percentage of the collection which we would consider pathological, so, or they would use to illustrate um, disease processes or things like that. And this is a, a very stark contrast to the other medical museums, including the Hunterian, who had significantly you know, more vast collections of pathological specimens. And this finding leads us to believe that the skeletal material in the collection was primarily used for anatomical reference and, to a certain point, for comparative anatomical studies. So arguably, the most influential figure in the history of the anatomical museum was the predecessor to uh, Sir Bozek Harwood, who was, of course, William Clark, who was the professor of anatomy from 1817 to 1865. And he was largely responsible for the proliferation of the medical museum and spent a considerable amount of time and money, both the universities and his own, in building up the collection for anatomical use. Oh, and uh, Clark says in 1836, these specimens here, to my knowledge, have cost the university 850 pounds. In addition to these, I have myself presented the museum with specimens independently of my own production and has cost me upwards of 200 pounds. So in 1820, the count of preparation reached a minimum of 477, including eight shelves consisting of crania and various other mammalian specimens, birds and fishes, and three shelves containing many curious specimens. Uh, so at this time, we see kind of an increase in the amount of material that was coming from human specimens. So we're up to 75% of the entire museum now being comprised of human material. Preparations would be used to educate, I'm sorry, how preparations would aid in the education of students was clearly Clark's initial priority when he took over the collection. For example, uh, due to the difficulty in preserving the anatomical structure of the circulatory system, nervous and absorbent, which is the lymphatic systems of the body, the museum purchased a large number of wax models from, Florin uh, from Florence and in the years of 1820 and 1821 at, uh, at a con considerable expense. So, The collection was moved in 1832 and was able to expand However, Clark continued to procure additional specimens, and from 1830, we see a dramatic increase to 1,300 specimens. So we've just had this mass proliferation of specimens after this time. The largest expansion of the Anatomical Museum came when Clark arranged the purchase of the entire collection of the James McCartney collection, who was an Irish anatomist at Trinity College, Dublin. This collection consisted of nearly 1,800 preparations to which McCartney continued to make valuable donations to until his death. The addition of the McCartney collection to the Anatomical Museum of Cambridge not only significantly increased the number of preparations in the museum to over 3,300, it additionally also drastically changed the composition of what we see in the material. So up to this point, we haven't seen hardly any preparations which we would consider to be pathological in nature. And 
We also had an additional influx of the human material, which over 66% of the new material from the James McCartney collection was human. But we also are seeing a, a v different variety of the types of animal preparations that we had before, including several members of the dolphin family, a kangaroo, and um, assorted other exciting animal preparations. So by the 1840s, Clark's own interests drew him more towards comparative anatomy, and this is reflected in what we see in the Anatomical Museum. So after the acquisition of the McCartney Collection, the university was reluctant to spend any more money on purchasing additional items for the museum. So Clark responded by purchasing relevant items out of his own pocket and then donating them to the museum. So during the mid-1800s, the university made significant changes to the curriculum as well, including the establishment of the Natural Science Tripos in 1848. So because the workload and the number of students that would be using the museum was going to be increasing, he asked a young surgeon, George Murray Humphrey, from the hospital in Cambridge, the Edinburgh Hospital in Cambridge, to assist him in giving the human anatomy lectures while Clark would be giving the comparative anatomy lectures. So the following year, this joint teaching arrangement that they had come to was divided, and Clark continued to lecture in zoology and comparative anatomy, and I'm sorry, Humphrey continued to give the human anatomical lectures. So after Clark had delegated the teaching of human anatomy, he was able to devote himself completely to the teaching of zoology, and this shows the final transition in Clark's research interests, which are reflected in what we see in the Cambridge catalogs. So Clark published the catalog of osteological portions of the Anatomical Museum of the University of Cambridge in 1862. And in this catalog was actually compiled by his son, John Willis Clark, who later had a major influence on the Museum of Zoology and Comparative Anatomy. In view of this shift in Clark's research interest towards comparative anatomy, the new discipline of zoology, um, it's, it's fairly unsurprising that the animal material in the museum at this time reached 90% of the entries that were listed in the catalog. So a, a meager 10% of the preparations left in the human anatomical museum were actually human. So a professor of zoology was created in 1865, and with this professorship came the newly created Museum of Zoology and Comparative Anatomy. So the division of the preparations was fairly straightforward. The majority of the human archaeological and anthropological material became the new museum of human anatomy and all of the animal and plant and some fossil preparations went to the zoology museum. So under the influence of George Murray Humphrey, the museum was once again focused on the instruction of human anatomy. Humphrey continued to lecture on anatomy and prepare anatomical preparations, but he also acquired several dip different types of anatomical teaching aids which were now becoming available. His catalog lists the purchase of several unique preparations from Paris and a number of anatomical models. So according to the Museum of Human Anatomy, they had a gallery of models which contained a considerable number of specimens for the purpose of teaching made in Paris and Leipzig. So the expanded the, uh, this expanded the collection of anatomical models which complemented the original models that we had purchased by Clark from Florence. So Humphrey was also very interested in comparative anatomy, 
and many of the preparations that he made during this time we were given to the zoology museum. So he was still very interested in comparative anatomy, uh, particularly of the eye. He has a lot of research where he, he looks at um, the optic nerves and the lenses of the eye. But he was also very interested in the symmetry of the body, which we're able to look at. And um, we have his handwritten catalog, which is actually very, very difficult to read, but um, pages of it are there. So increasingly, during Humphrey's tenure, a large number of the preparations that were added to the museum actually came from the dissection room. And you can see some of them in this photograph. We see this dissected human skull here, and then this is actually the pelvis of a woman who I believe died during childbirth, and they have the, um, uh, the, the preparation there. But that we have both of those at the University of Cambridge, and they're sitting in lovely cardboard boxes if anybody would like to come see them. So while the first anthropological specimens were collected and displayed in the museum when Clark was in charge of it, this was a trend that increased um, under the influence of Humphrey. In 1873, he purchased a large archaeological collection, which was primarily British skulls that had been excavated by uh, Dr. John Thurnham, and this became known as the Thurnham Collection. And it contained mostly human remains from long barrows, uh, Romano-British, Anglo-Saxon, and many other exotic skulls after his death. And this collection was presented to the museum, and it still resides in the Duckworth Collection. So during Humphrey's curatorship, the collection was also enlarged by multiple ethnographic or exotic additions, including a number of skulls from Southwest America, South Africa, Europe, and several of these were from aboriginal tribes, which of course is highly controversial today in, in my department still. So the increase in the skeletal remains of the indigenous populations coincided with an increased interest in human variation by both anatomists and anthropologists. And this increased interest um, is highlighted by the significant expansion of the ancient Peruvian skeletal material uh, found within the collection. So this was a collection that was purchased from uh, Colonel Hutchinson, who uh, acquired these skulls when he was in Peru. It's all a bit uncertain, really. <laughs> but he, he, he specifically selected them because they had evidence of cranial modification. So you can see on the skull to your left, the occipital bone has been flattened. And it kind of creates... Um, a sort of condensed shape so the skull will grow upwards rather than, than outwards. So that's a very, very unique shape there. And then this is another one showing cranial modification, only this was showing a type of banding that they would put around the skull to create that elongated type of uh, cranial vault. So Humphrey resigned in 1883 to take up the newly created professorship of surgery. And the increase in acquiring anthropological and archaeological material continued with the next professor of anatomy, who was Alexander McAllister. While we obviously don't have enough time to go through the influence of um, Alexander McAllister, he, he had several papers uh, written in addition to uh, Henry Duckworth, for whom the skeletal collections of the Division of Biological Anthropology, of course, now named, and they, they played a great influence on the types of research that was being conducted on these types of skeletal remains. The collection housed the Museum of Human Anatomy were then again split, and the skeletal material of archaeological and anthropological interest came to form the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, and then we lose all record of what happened to the rest of the 
anatomical teaching specimens, the, spe- uh, the specimens that would have been from contemporary individuals. We just have no record. Other than we know there was a gradual decline and the museum was dissolved. And that's how they ended up in my department in the first place in the 60s. However, this collection remains a valuable teaching resource. And today the research on the collection is underway with several of the anthropological collections. We also have a very, very large collection of Egyptian um, mummies and skeletons. And I'm using this collection to examine the cut marks on the osteological material, which provides information on human dissections. Oh, there's another skull from New Guinea that's from the Cooper collection. It's just quite a shocking specimen, and it's, it's very well preserved, so I thought I would, I would show it. We've got about 80 of those as well. So this is actually uh, the research that I'm conducting in the collection just now. I'm using scanning electron microscopy to analyze the cut marks on the dissected material and then correlating back from the micrographs to the types of surgical instruments that were being used. And that's a collection from uh, the Royal London Hospital, but it, um, it was quite an interesting one. We don't find this saw being used very often because it's not its intended purpose, so that's why uh, that was interesting. So I hope that this presentation has shown how the content of the anatomical museum at the University of Cambridge has evolved from human anatomy to human and comparative anatomy, and then back to focusing on the human anatomical studies. Specifically, I hope that um, I've shown that the curriculum has changed to match the objectives of each professor of anatomy, which itself highlights the changing attitude towards anatomy that existed in Britain at this time. And the evolution of the content of the museum, I think, has been a very, very fascinating story, and I hope to continue to do more research on this. And I would appreciate any comments or any questions that anyone has at this time. Thank you.